0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. Start making your way in and grabbing a seat. We can jump in to 2 Kings 21. This is where we'll be this morning. 2 Kings 21 and Manasseh. Manasseh, bloodshed, and the name of God. 2 Kings 21. Let's go to him now in prayer as we begin. Well, Father, we do arise this morning seeking your face because you tell us to seek your face. We long to see your glory through your word. We long for your spirit to give us great thoughts of you, great thoughts of your name. We pray that you would deepen our faith, that you would deepen our trust, that you would lengthen our our hope in you, our delight in you that you would grow just our vision of your splendor and your glory. I pray that you would help us to grieve sin well, to repent humbly and genuinely, to not look to our own righteousness, but to Christ, to the cross, to his life, to his death, to his resurrection, we pray that we would be a church that is marked by your name and your gospel and governed by your spirit and by your word. We pray that you would edify this church this morning, that you would grow us, that you would conform us to the image of your son so that your name would be made much of in this place. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We imagine if you wrote your name beautifully on a wall somewhere. Lots of colors, lots of creativity, lots of beauty to it. And then the next day, someone proceeded to smear it with mud and with slime and even took animal feces and just threw it all against the wall where your name was written. What conclusion would you draw from their actions? What conclusion would you draw about, okay, what they thought about you? What conclusion would other people draw, if they saw it? Would you feel, okay, honored or dishonored? Or what if someone just went around singing about the splendor of your name, and wrote your name everywhere, and talked to others about the beauty of your name? Would you feel something personally about that? I think you would. Because throughout scripture, throughout human life, names matter they have meaning. They represent who we are. And so when the Lord enters into a covenant with Abraham, he's going to change his name to Abraham. No longer Sarai, but Sarah. When he takes Jacob, changes his name to to Israel. When a wife enters into a covenant with her husband, she takes his name. It's not just a legal thing. It has meaning. It says something about the meaning of marriage, that they now have become one flesh. Our name is part of our identity. And how we live our lives will affect how people see our names, remember our names. Listen to Proverbs 21.1. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. And favor is better than silver or gold. Because our names stand for us. So Solomon says, yeah, better to have a great name than great riches, a great reputation than all kinds of wealth. And if you really think about it, because of your personal experience with certain people in your history, there'll be certain names you don't give your children, right? Did you and your spouse have to have that conversation? What are the names you're not going to name your kids? Because that name, when you remember it from your life, stirs memories you're like yeah we don't need that name said in our house all the time you remember it it affects you well the name of the Lord the maker of heaven and earth Yahweh Jehovah is the name above all names because he's the glory above all glories the maker of heaven and earth the creator he is God and if there's a point scripture continually makes It's that his name is exalted. His name is above every other name. And he's in the business of getting the whole world to see it. That there's no name above his name. According to the third commandment, we're not to take his name in vain. Exodus 20, verse 7, which means to not regard it as empty, to not treat it as if it's missed. That's what it means. Don't take it in vain. Don't act as if God's name doesn't mean anything. And that's never commanded of any other name. We are to hallow his name, which means regard his name as holy. No other name in all the world are you told to treat that way. Only his name to be hallowed. And so when God places his name somewhere or upon someone, it's a big deal. If you remember, after redeeming the people of Israel from Egypt, he took them as his special possession and called them by his name. 2 Chronicles 7.14, he referred to Judah as, my people who are called by my name. And they were meant to be in awe of that reality. Just blown away by the fact that God would take them as his people and call them by his name, to actually give them his name. When he brought them into the promised land, he established Jerusalem as a place where he made his name to dwell. Six times he's going to say that in Deuteronomy. More times in the Old Testament he's going to say that than we can list right now. Jerusalem, the place where I caused my name to dwell the city that I identified myself with. When Solomon dedicated the temple to Jerusalem, he prayed that 1 Kings 8.43, all the peoples of all the earth may know your name and fear you. Solomon's dedicating the temple, and he's like, his hope, his prayer is that all the earth would know the name Yahweh and fear it. He said, and as do your people Israel, And that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. So a land, a city, a house, a people, all called by his name. Therefore, all chosen to display his unique glory in the world so that all the world would know his name, would revere his name, would honor his name, would bless his name, would trust in his name. Brings us to the main point for this morning. Those who despise the name of the Lord will be brought down. But those who honor and take shelter in his name will be lifted up. And the reign of Manasseh will drive that point home. will make that point clear. He will make little of God's name. And he's going to lead Judah into making little of God's name. And he will be brought down. And the whole nation is going to be brought down. He will shed much innocent blood, Scripture will say, in Jerusalem. And the Lord will promise to, 2 Kings twenty-one thirteen wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Because of all the evil that they committed under Manasseh's reign. And they'll never fully recover as a nation, by the way, after Manasseh. They'll never really recover. They're not meant to. In fact, the only possible recovery is through Jesus Christ, which ironically is the name that saves us from all our offenses against the name. So we're going to look at number one, the bloodshed of Manasseh. We'll look at the decree of disaster that's going to come, and we'll look thirdly at the name of God and then talk through some of the implications of that. So the bloodshed of Manasseh, verse 1, 2 Kings 21, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So what we're going to see is that purity and peace is going to be dismantled in one generation. Purity of worship, peace of the nation all dismantled in one generation. He's going to tear down the system of true worship that his father labored for decades to establish, that his father gave his life to establish. Manasseh's going to tear it all down. And I think there really is a small lesson for us here as parents. We really need to be careful about trusting in the longevity of our good works. Because someone can arise, even from our own children, and tear it all down. And tear it all down very, very quickly. Hezekiah was a faithful king. He did much to restore true worship of Yahweh in Judah. Yet his son will undo it. And so we need to be aware of just sort of the idolatry of a great legacy, right? How often do you hear that? You know, live for your legacy. What do you want your legacy to be? Well, you have less control of that than you think. Number one, God will decide. Number two, your kids will decide. And all those who come after you might decide. Because everything you establish, everything you build over decades and decades of your life can be torn down. I think even more as parents, we need to be the idolatry of trophy kids. Where we look to their performance as the measure of our righteousness. And we have to be careful about judging the righteousness of other parents by the performance of their kids. Parenting really does matter. We're called to love and teach our children. We're called to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. But all the while remembering that it's the grace of God that matters most. That the Lord really is the decisive factor. The Spirit must come upon our children. They must be born again. They must trust and love and follow Jesus from their hearts and we can teach we can serve we can labor we can pour in we can pray we can be faithful in the church we can draw others around them but then the lord is the decisive factor and we see after all these decades of hezekiah laboring manasseh his son comes along comes to the throne at 12 and about five decades of evil I think there are times where we should feel a sense of guilt and remorse as parents, and even see our need for repentance as parents, but I think we need to base this on actual sin we've committed, actual neglect, actual wrongdoing, not simply on the behavior of our children. We're influential, but not sovereign. We love and discipline our children. We must pray for their salvation. But then we have to be prepared for what the Lord has decreed for them, and the road he's decreed for them to walk, and the story he's decreed for their life to tell, which could be very painful to watch over time. Amazingly, repentance and faith will happen in Manasseh's life, but not till the last few years, long after his parents are dead. They'll never see it. Not till glory they'll know about it. Before that, it's going to be 50 years of idolatry and violence. And we'll see that, point B, idolatry and violence established in one generation. Verse 4, and he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven and the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers, if only they will be careful to do according to all that I've commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. Verse 9, but they did not listen. And Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done, whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. What a tragedy. And verse 16, Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides the sins that he had made Judah to sin so that he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So not only did Manasseh tear down the system of true worship that his father had rebuilt, He even erected a system of false worship that his father had spent decades to tear down. The whole direction Hezekiah went in, Manasseh's going to run in another. He shed very much innocent blood. Notice the words, he filled Jerusalem with it. Now this could refer to murdering all those who opposed his reign throughout the course of his reign. Or it could also refer to just the blatant injustice that filled Jerusalem at the time where the powerful just preyed upon the weak and shed innocent blood at will because of all the injustice that's there. We know it certainly refers to the brutal sacrifice of children, even his own children, to false gods, to the false god of Molech, a Moabite god. Verse 6, he burned his son as an offering. And according to 2 Chronicles 33, 6, he actually burned multiple sons as offerings, which meant he would have encouraged everyone else in Jerusalem to do the same. So I most believe that's what it's referred to. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. Because what it's not saying is that children are sinless. What it means is they're not guilty of anything worthy of the death penalty. That's what he's getting at when he's saying innocent. He filled Jerusalem with the blood of those who had done nothing worthy of death. Yeah, everybody's sinful. Everybody's guilty before God and deserving of judgment. But that's very different than being guilty of crimes on earth that are worthy of execution. Yet you know, that's what they're doing as sacrifices to this false God. That Manasseh is going to sacrifice multiple sons, or to use the language of Scripture, cause them to walk through the fire as an offering, and encourage so many in Jerusalem to do the same. But we see how the Lord sees and assesses everything. Point C there. Because there's an irony here. The Lord really is pleased with right sacrifices. Will the Lord one day demand the sacrifice of a son? as an atonement for sin. Yes, but whose son? It's going to be his own son. But he explains it very carefully in his word. Very clear in scripture why the Lord demands sacrifice, and who he wants sacrifice from, and what sacrifice that he's seeking, and how it's only in the sacrifice of his perfect son is he satisfied and pleased. So whatever notion Manasseh has in his mind didn't come from the God of Israel. It came from all the false religions that are around. The false religions, they were supposed to be dispossessing and eradicating from the earth. That's where Manasseh is getting this from. His offering is to idols, not to Yahweh, prescribed by man, not by God. Which is why God, through scripture, is going to tell us what he thinks about it. Verse 16 Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another, besides the sin that he had made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God calls it evil. Verse 2, he calls it despicable. Verse 11, an abomination. In other words, something loathsome to his soul, something vile to his heart. I think it's worth pausing there for a minute and asking, okay, do you assess your life the way the Lord assesses your life? Do you assign meaning and value to your thoughts, to your emotions, to your actions that are actually through the word of God? Or do you get it from somewhere else? The Word of God is always trying to correct our gaze to help us assess reality, even assess our own lives truthfully. Because how many of us, the better we get to know the Lord, the more He brings us to the Scripture and opens our eyes, the more we realize there's just things we've thought for a long time that are just dead wrong. Or ways we've done things for a lot of our lives that are actually just sinful. And things that we always thought were kind of wrong or silly or stupid, we actually realize, oh, that's actually righteous, that's actually pleasing. It's just a great lesson on how deeply we need to be filled with the Word of God, how constantly we need to be in the Word of God, how desperately we depend on God's point of view for everything. Because how do you know the thing that you do is really from God and not just from tradition? How do you know it's actually really biblical and not just conservative values? Do you know the difference between scriptural truth and just traditions we inherited from former generations? Well, how is Manasseh reading it? Yeah, he's not looking at all this through the word of God. He's looking at it through culture. He's looking at it through the moral systems that are around him. He's looking at it through all the other voices that he's hearing from the world. And so he's looking at, oh, this is good. God says, well, actually, it's evil. That's scary, isn't it? When we say, yeah, look at what I'm doing. It's really great. And God goes, actually, it's despicable. That's the word that I would use. Or he says, it's an abomination. This thing you're upholding before me actually smells loathsome to me. And there's no better you know, expression of this than self righteousness, right? We're just walking in whatever self righteousness, and we just bring that to God and go, Lord, isn't this great? And we think we're holding up to him this beautiful trophy. And what he sees is bloody garments. He goes, actually, that's those are filthy rags. And this whole time we thought it was an Armani suit. It's humbling. Every morning I have to wake up and go, okay, Lord, less of me, more of you. I've got to decrease, you've got to increase. Less of my words, more of your words. Less culture, more scripture. And that doesn't just happen overnight. It's a commitment to day after day, hour after hour, year after year, just being made new by the Spirit of God and the Word of God. In the meantime, the Lord is going to send his prophets to Judah to decree disaster, which brings to this second point, the decree of disaster. Verse 10, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols, Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. The Lord's going to bring a kind of judgment through Babylon that it's going to make everybody shudder. They're going to get shivers just go right down their spine when they hear what's coming. Just the news of it will cause trembling. You know, imagine receiving that kind of news. Imagine we're hearing of news of such disaster that your body physically tingles. Like imagine if a number of just credible prophets rose up in our day and said, "Okay, in 10 years, sort of enemy nations are going to drop 100 nuclear bombs on 100 cities in the United States, killing 100 million people." Right before, then after that all these armies are going to invade and kill another 100 million. And then take tens of millions captive and scatter them throughout the world. 200 million dead within a year. Tens of millions taken away as slaves to the nations. And they're only going to leave the poorest of the poor within the borders of this country just to tend the land. I mean, imagine hearing that. And it being credible. And you knowing this really is going to happen. Would not your ears tingle. Your stomach, turn. That's what he's describing. That's what he's announcing is coming to Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 13, and I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria. I mean, the same way I measured them, I'll measure you. The plumb line of the house of Ahab. That plumb line that I applied to his house, I'm going to apply to Judah. Remember what that plumb line was? And kill everybody. Every male of this house. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. Why? Well, they filled it with blood. That's the parallel. They filled it, one into the other with blood. So I'm going to wipe it as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. So apparently these sins of Manasseh aren't entirely new. But it's in keeping with the sins of the nation going back to the Exodus generation. So then David was an exception. Some of these faithful kings were exceptions, but there was always sort of this cancer there in the nation this proneness to idolatry, this proneness to false worship, this proneness to murder. And what the Lord's saying is that he's been exceedingly patient. For centuries, he's been patient. And now all that, the penalty of their error is due. I mean, just you know, look at, for example, the debt that our country is accruing. At some point, it's due. Well, imagine if those are sins. Like just you know, put up on your computer someday the, the, our debt as a nation and just watch it raise rise every day. Every minute it's going up. Then just pretend that those are just the sins of the people. Accruing, 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 compounding in the interest. And then the Lord's saying here, yeah, it's all now due. All the loans are recalled. And they have no ability to pay. So he's going to turn it upside down, shake the excess food into the trash, wash it with water, scrub it with a rag... That's what he's going to do with Jerusalem. He's going to use Nebuchadnezzar as the rinse and the Babylonian army as the rag and just clean it out. You know, when the prophet Habakkuk complained to God about all the injustice that was in Judah at this time, all the evil, all the sin, all the false worship, the Lord replied to him with these words in Habakkuk 1, 5 through 6. He said, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, to the Babylonians, that bitter and hasty nation to march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own, and eventually to wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. And as he explained it to Habakkuk, Habakkuk's like, oh no. Like when I meant do something about it, I didn't mean that. And why is the Lord going to do it? Well, verses 9 and 11, because their abominations are worse than that of the Canaanites they dispossessed. You go, what a tragedy. Because of the evil, because of the idolatry, because of everything that was going on in Canaan, God is bringing his people in to drive them out, eradicate false worship, establish a place where his name would dwell where Yahweh is worshiped and adored and trusted and followed and lo and behold over time now the people are doing worse than the nations they dispossessed except with one dreadful terrible thing and that is now God's name is attached to it that's what he means like okay this is worse 17, now the rest of the acts of Manasseh, all that he did and the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah, and Ammon his son reigned in his place. Notice how the acts of his life are summed up, verse 17, the sin that he committed. That's the summary phrase we're given at the end of his life. His acts are recorded, the sins he committed. That's how he's going to be known, at least in 2 Kings 21. The sin he encouraged others to commit, the idolatry, the injustice, the bloodshed, the killing of children. All of it worse than the nations that were there before. And as we said, except for with one tragic difference, and that is the name of Yahweh is attached to this, connected to this. Which brings us to the third point the name of God. Because we notice the real offense of Manasseh's evil in verse 4. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. That's not there by accident. God's making a point. He put false altars to other gods. In the place where the Lord said, In Jerusalem, I'll put my name there. Verse 7 And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. It's like God's saying, That's where he put an Asherah, that's where he shed all this innocent blood. That's where he erected the system of false worship, in the house, in the city, where I put my name, where my name's everywhere, where I'm identified with it. Now the nations look and this is what they see. The name of Yahweh smeared with blood all over it, the wrong kind of blood, tarnished. The offense was against the name of God. He reviled God, even all the innocent blood and all the sin he provoked others to do in verse 15 was truly evil because, verse 15, it was evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's the measure, is what is it against the name of God? What is it in the sight of the Lord? That's the seriousness of sin. Is it sin against his name? And this is just a theme through the Bible, that the size of the offense is measured by the size of the offended party. The profanity of the act is proportional to the holiness of the person it's against. We all know this. We must never measure the seriousness of our sin simply by the horizontal damage that it causes. We must never measure it simply by being caught or worse, how we feel about it. Or worse, how it looks to everybody else. Or worse, what everybody else says about it. But it was, must always be measured against the holiness of the God it offends. There's no such thing as small sins because God is not small. Some sins are greater than others, but the least of sin is still great sin. Because it's against a very holy God. A God whose name is worthy. There's no such thing as a private sin. It's all in the face of God. How often in that passage does it say, and the, the Lord sees it. The Lord has opinions about it. You know, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, then murdered her husband Uriah in order to take her as a wife to cover up her pregnancy... The Lord sent a prophet to confront him. And though David had sinned against Uriah, even sinned in a way against Bathsheba, God made sure to define, here's here's the real depth of the problem. Here's the essence of the sin. 2 Samuel 12, 14. By this deed, you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Fascinating. Fascinating. That's, he said, that's the big problem, is the whole world knows you're my anointed king. The whole world knows that my name is on you. The whole world knows my name is on this city, on this place. And you've given a reason for all my enemies to blaspheme my name because of what you did. So the Lord, and that's why he's going to take the child of that adultery, and that child's going to die. Not as a punishment to the kid, but as a statement to the world. So the whole world can see, no, I am holy. I am righteous. I am not for this. It was to vindicate his name. We're saying, David, you're my chosen anointed king, and you've given a reason for the whole world to despise me. Even David came to realize in his repentance, this is Psalm 51.4, he says, Against you, Lord, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. At the end of the day, David realizes that's actually what this is about. God being justified, vindicated, proven righteous. Shown to be holy when it's all done. And interestingly, what this doesn't do is minimize our our horizontal sins against others. At first, you might hear that and go, okay, so does it mean it didn't make his sin against Uriah that big a deal? When really, it's the opposite of that. It actually makes the horizontal sins against others a really big deal because what God is saying is, hey, when you sin against that other person, it offends me. When you are unfaithful to your spouse, when you are unkind and rude to other people, when you fill in the blank, he says, I take that personally. It's against my name. And so, when all sin is ultimately vertical, it makes all the horizontal stuff even worse, even weightier, even harder to face, even more serious. Because what it means is when I sacrifice my children on the altar of my career, I disparage his name. Because sacrificing our children through abortion is perhaps easier to see, but what about neglecting them spiritually so that I can watch a bunch of television? Or neglecting them relationally in order to advance my career? What if I sacrifice my children on the altar of my comfort or my worldliness? or my quick temper, or whatever other idolatrous impulses for the sake of my own name? Does not God see that in the same light? Not just the external acts, but even the internal acts. There's a lot of ways to sacrifice children, not just through killing them on an altar to Moloch. And so when I shed innocent blood in my heart, Even by being sinfully angry toward other people, God sees it. God hears it. God feels something about it. Jesus is going to say this in Matthew 5 You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whoa. He's saying, you've heard it was said in the law, you shall not murder. And then he's basically saying, now you didn't think that just meant physically, right? To which we all say, what at that point? Actually, yeah, I sure did. (laughs) I really thought you just meant physically. And what Jesus is doing in Matthew 5 is, is actually interpreting the full meaning of the law. And he said, you should not murder. He meant not even in your heart. We said, don't commit adultery. He meant don't even lust in your heart. It may be a difference in quantity of sin, but the quality is the same. And that's what Jesus is wanting us to see, that that sinful anger toward another, that lust for Another. It's qualitatively the same as outright murder, outright adultery. That's really meant to be the lesson, I think, here for us, that since we've actually not sacrificed our children on altars to Molech or physically murdered people or filled the city of Fayetteville with their blood, we can easily say this isn't really about me. I'm not really in any danger But what if we start seeing bitterness, resentment, hatefulness, sinful anger, selfishness, just the way God sees it? What if we start feeling about it the way he feels about it? Because when we start thinking about it the way God thinks about it, just how much innocent blood have you shed in your lifetime? Could we fill a city with it just from our congregation? If you just take every hateful thought, every aggressive sinful inclination, every desire for another person's harm as an act of murder, then how much blood is on our hands? The name of God is above all names, and any offense against his name is worthy of damnation. That's what Scripture just told us. According to Colossians 3.5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion evil desire and covetousness which amounts to idolatry that's the words covetousness he says basically idolatry envy evil desire passion that is wrongly placed it's just basically idolatry and ezekiel 20 tells us that idolatry profanes the name of the lord it's his language profanes the name of the Lord. So when we think about it, the way God thinks about it, just how much idolatry have we committed in our lifetime? How many altars have we bowed down to? In other words, why would the Lord not wipe us the way one wipes a dish? Should not our ears tingle when we read of the judgment that is deserved? Why are we not given up as prey and spoil to our enemies? Are we more righteous than Manasseh? Because that's the temptation, right? To read this and go, ooh, I'm so glad I'm so so much better than he is. Are we more holy than David? I don't think we're meant to read this and conclude that. I think we're meant to read it and go, oh, no, right? Right? Why would the Lord not wipe us the way one wipes a dish? Well, answer, because of the grace of God poured out through the name Jesus Christ. That's how. That's why. That's why we're going to talk about the sweetness of salvation. Aren't you glad we're not stopping right now? Like, just pray and be done. Now, there's the sweetness of salvation in his name that all the innocent blood we have shed, whether with our hands or in our hearts, is covered. And atoned for by the innocent blood that was shed on the cross. Our offenses to his name are paid and forgiven through faith in his name. That's the beauty of the gospel. All the sins we've ever committed against his name are washed away by faith in his name. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, or you Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. It says, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of of our God. In other words, we're declared righteous before God, not because of the smallness of our offenses against his name, but because of the greatness of the name by which we're saved. That's the point. In Acts 2, when the crowd was struck to the heart by the preaching of Peter, when they just saw the reality of their sin, remember Peter laid it at their feet, hey, you're the one that put him to death. Even though they could go, whoa, 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 we didn't kill him. Peter's like, no, no, your sins did it. Your hands did it. You're complicit. And it says they're struck to the heart. I'm going to say, what shall we do? That should be our response always to those kinds of passages. What shall we do? To which Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Repent and be baptized because of faith and a name. So amazingly, we're saved from the wrath deserved for putting Jesus to death by trusting in his death. We're saved from our offenses against Jesus Christ by trusting in the name Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that free. Because his name stands for his character and work. So to trust in the name of Jesus, to be baptized in his name, means to trust in him, to trust in his righteous life, to trust in his atoning death, to trust in his resurrection. Sort of counting as your resurrection, him being your first fruits. That's why we're called, that's why Peter calls us, repent and believe. Trust in the name. So you're here this morning and you've never done that. You get to do that right now. You could just get to call on God, turn from your sin, look to Christ, turn from all those offenses against his name, and say, I trust in his name. I believe his name. I want his death to count for my death. I want to be united to him. And Peter says, that's how we're saved. That's how God doesn't wipe us as one wipes a dish. That's how we don't get the judgment that should cause our ears to tingle. Because all that judgment was put on Jesus. Because one day we will walk into the throne room of God, we will stand before him in the judgment seat, And the great and only comfort we're going to have in that moment is we have his name. He's written his name on us. He's taken us as his own. And so when we walk in, we shouldn't be like checking for money in our pockets that we're going to pay him off with. We shouldn't be looking at the list of all our deeds. We should just be looking for that tattoo that just has Jesus when we stand before god in judgment that will be the glorious and singular assurance is the truth that we belong to christ we are in christ that all the sins we have ever committed ever will commit have been put on him and borne away all the righteousness that he achieved has been put on us so now the father can actually look at us and go yeah such were some of you but not anymore you're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified in his name. Isaiah predicted the day of the new covenant. <clears throat> this is Isaiah 44 verse 5. When that new covenant comes, he says, This one will say, I am the Lord's. And another will call on the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hands, the Lord's. And name himself by the name of Israel. That's what we're all going to be doing as we approach heaven. Just got to get those sharpies out and just start writing the Lord's everywhere. We live in a day of boasting in his name. We're a people called by his name. Scripture calls, okay, we're the bride of Christ. We've taken his name. We're the body of Christ. We've taken his name. That's our comfort. That's our salvation. That's how we read through Manasseh now and go, okay, how do we not end up like that? By being in Christ, by bearing his name. Well, what should be the effect of this? The effect of bearing his name? This is where I want us to kind of close this morning. I think there's a lot of things we could say. There'll be a few that we focus on. The first is a sense of identity, security, and reverence. That should be the first, I think, effect of bearing his name, that by being adopted into God's family, that God has put his name on us, and that's irrevocable. That should greatly affect how you see yourself, child of God, belonging to God. He is your father. When Jesus even teaches us to pray, he's like, yeah, refer to him as father. Father. Not as some distant deity. You have his name. And it's irrevocable. We're children of God. Everything we think, feel, do, reflects him, speaks on behalf of his name. That's where the reverence part comes in. You Remember, we bear his name. How we speak reflects on his name. Which doesn't mean, okay, you just better not ever sin again. But when you do, what should be the response? Yeah, repentance. What does that do to the name of God when we repent of our sin? It vindicates His name. That's one reason why repentance is so important in the church. One reason why repentance is so important by Christians in the world. We're not going out there saying, yeah, we're just less sinful than everybody. No, what we're saying is we're grieved by the fact that we have brought disparagement to His name. So we want to repent openly, as David is saying. That's what he's saying in Psalm 51 so that God can be justified, so that he can be declared righteous. So we still sin against his name, but that's why we grieve it and run back to him and fix our hope upon Christ. That's even the basis for our security. We trust that we are forgiven by Christ and forgiven in Christ. So it's an identity, there's reverence, but there's also a sense of security, You'll never have to pay the price for your sin. Jesus did. You'll never face the judgment that sins deserve. Jesus did that for you. According to Luke 24, 47, Acts 2, 38, Acts 10, 43, we receive forgiveness of sins through his name, which is also one of the reasons why now we we revere him and honor him. Second effect is blessing and privilege and thanksgiving, that through union with Christ we take on his name and there's no greater name, which means that's quite a privilege. Listen to Hebrews 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. His name, more excellent. Well, that's the name you've been given. We have his excellent name. Consider the freedom that comes with his name. Like, you just show up in glory and you get in. Why? You have his name. Like, try to walk up to the White House today and just walk in the front door. Are they going to let you in? Well, no, but what if your last name's Biden? And you're related to him, of course, to the president. That's different, isn't it? Or four years ago, what what if your last name's Trump? Or eight years ago, your last name is Obama. Your name mattered. If you're Obama's kids and he's in the white, like, you get in. You walk through the door. And what a puny little example of what it's like to have the name Christ on you. And so do you consider yourself the most privileged human beings on the planet? We should, right? Are we thankful, the most thankful of all beings on the planet? We should be. Are you willing to suffer any reproach, any discomfort, any scorn, because you're not ashamed of his name? Paul's going to say that to Timothy. He's going to say, Timothy, don't be ashamed of me or of the testimony of our Lord. So there's something about not being ashamed of his name. You know, this Hebrew says he's not ashamed to call us brothers, which is a really remarkable statement. He's not ashamed to walk into the room and own you as his. And so we shouldn't be ashamed of him or to carry his name. Soberness and mission is another effect. Because in us, the Lord is glorifying his name. Therefore, we should not take his name in vain or live as if his name is empty. Because the Lord has not saved us merely for the sake of saving us, but saved us to make much of his name for the sake of displaying his glory, of showing his beauty to the world to make more worshipers of his name. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That should sober us. And give us a sense of mission, a sense of purpose, a sense of direction. He's glorifying his name in us. It's what he wanted to do in Israel. But they were worse than the Amorites. In every generation since and before, which is why God had to send his son, I'll have him do it. And then I'll recreate a people with new hearts, fill them with my spirit under the new covenant, put my name on them, and glorify myself through them. And that's why the church is here. That's why we're here. That through us, he would glorify his name. And then finally, humility and worship. That someday every knee will bow at his name. Because they're finally going to see and comprehend who he is. We bow now because we already know who he is. We gladly humble ourselves beneath his name. We worship His name. Listen to Philippians 2, verse 9. God has highly exalted Him, meaning Jesus, and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That unlike Manasseh, Jesus did not sacrifice the lives of others for his own pleasure. He sacrificed his own life for the Father's pleasure in the redemption of his bride. That's why now the Father says, okay, your name's above every name. I'm exalting you above every name. And someday, every knee's going to bow. Every tongue's going to confess that he has the name above all names. That should make us worship should make us worship now. His name gives us a new identity in Christ, a firm security in Christ, a deep reverence for Christ. In his name, we are richly blessed. In his name, we should feel all kinds of soberness, all kinds of gratitude, all kinds of thanksgiving, all kinds of urgency to both live for his glory and to make his glory known. And how do we do that? We go to all the ends of the earth proclaiming his name. Forgiveness of sins in his name. Reconciliation to God in his name. I mean that those who despise the name of the Lord will be brought down. But those who honor and take shelter in his name will be lifted up. And not just now, but forever. Yeah, questions, comments, thoughts? Got a few minutes here. All right. Yeah, that's in Second Chronicles that records that part that we actually get a sense that in the final years of his life there is actually real contrition and repentance. Um, and I think we, we would need to go there, but yeah, if I can remember it right, it's, I think it's true repentance that is seen in his life toward the very closing years. And he actually turns some things around, but it's sort of too late when it comes for the nation. All these seeds have already been planted. All these weeds have already grown up. All these things have already been put in place, but he personally, the Lord, really humbles him and brings him, I think, to a place of repentance. That's why many believe, yeah, we'll see him in heaven, Um, which is why it's, I think, also important not to think, yeah, he's just so much worse than me. Um, Yeah, he'll look at you and not see a big difference, Um, redeemed by the grace of God in Christ. Good question though. Other questions, comments? Yeah. So, yeah, thank you for asking. Um, I mean, miraculously, yeah, they were able to get a stint in this week in her heart, and she's recovering really well. They moved her to a rehab unit last night. Um, so we praise God for that. Um, and so it's been a slow, yeah. There's been a couple moments where it's been close where we've thought, okay, this, this could be it. But the Lord has been merciful and has mercifully, I think for now it looks like, spared her and spared us. And um, so, yeah, just to keep praying, to keep praying that the rehab goes well. And yeah, thanks. Other questions, thoughts, comments? Yeah, Dan. Yeah, that's good. So the question is, yeah, how do we become proud of the name of Jesus? I think you make a good point by not turning it into a mantra, you know, not turning it into just some ritualistic chant. But I think it starts by beholding in Scripture the glory of Christ, seeing His works, seeing who He is, because again, the name stands for Him. It stands for His worth, His value, and so part of valuing the name is seeing the person who, who holds that name, beholding his works. Um, so I think that's one piece. I think a second that we see here that even gets pointed out, especially in the New Testament, is just seeing what we were, what Christ has given for our salvation, how he humbled himself to do that, and now what he's making us into the, the Apostle Paul of 1 Corinthians 6 and Philippians 2 thinks that will lead us to exalt his name, to hold his name as precious, to delight in his name. That's a part. I think a third is to see, okay, there's to see the power that it is, is in his name. You know, the, where is it in Acts where the, the sons of Sceva, the seven sons of Sceva, are out trying to cast out demons? And they're out casting demons saying, okay, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, be, be gone. And remember, the, the demon-possessed man turns on him and says, well, Jesus we know, and Paul we've heard of, but who are you? And then beats them all and strips them all naked, and they run out. And then it says, and great fear fell on everybody when they heard of it. Why? Well, not because these guys got whipped by demons, but because even a demon confesses, yeah, Jesus, I know. And almost to say, and, and I know if he's the one talking, I listen. And Paul, I know of. You know, I've even wondered, were demons given like a list? Like, All right, here's your cheat sheet. Like, if he says, get out, you got to leave. And so the demons, are, they're kind of looking on their list going, okay, Jesus, yeah, we, we know him. Paul, okay, he's here. Wait, who are you? What's your name again? And once again, yeah, you're not on here. It just beats them. But it was fear in, okay, the power of the name and in his name. The idea that people can be saved by a name. That the, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. And so I think, too, it's even to study in Scripture, to see in Scripture, the power that is in that name. And it doesn't mean we just get to wield however we please to do whatever we want but rather just to, that I think there's something about that that affects us when we see the power that is in his name. Um, and I think a fourth point, I think, which is some of what you're getting at, it's not something you artificially manufacture. It's something you learn by spending time with Jesus. You learn to, to love him and to value him and delight by, by getting to know him slowly over time, by walking with him. By talking with him, by listening to him through his word. And so I think it's something that is developed and cultivated over years. Yeah. Good. The King and I was a great movie by Jung Brunner, and in that, there's a beautiful song, Getting to Know You. Yeah, in The King and I, that's right. And, um, no, but the point was still well made. Thank you, brother. It, um, but there's something in getting to know the person that changes how you see their name, how you hear their name, how you think about their name, how you present their name yeah, to others. Yeah. Well, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do praise you for sending your son, for him humbling himself even to the point of death, death on a cross, to redeem your people to purchase us with his blood, and because of it, you have exalted him above every name. And we look forward to that day where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. In the meantime, we pray that you would help us to be faithful, help us to be humble, help us to be sober, help us to live for the glory of his name, help us to know him well, to revere him deeply, to love him completely, to give ourselves to him, And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. Thanks, y'all.